0: this episode of 9 to I Talks, Rachel Bloom and Aline Broch McKenna, the comedy masterminds behind the CW's critically acclaimed Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, discuss the new season and more with Entertainment Weekly's Sam Highfill. The conversation was recorded on February 13th, 2018 in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Yeah,
1: yeah. sorry, I'm cracking my, b- it's been a long day, I'm cracking
0: my back. <laughs> Had you guys ever, like, played with the idea of doing a live
1: episode of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend?
2: Is that possible? People have asked crazy us about that a lot. I have no interest in it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Here's the thing. It's like, it's almost like I feel like people ask us that because they don't, we're not doing enough work already. They're like, they're like you know what, I don't think you guys are going crazy enough, and I think you're seeing your families too much. So I think you should do, um, there's just no... There's no reason to if there were a good reason to do a live episode, um uh, but like I just don't we're I don't know, it's a
2: it's I'm, a show I'm, I'm that- frankly more interested in the concert and them being live. Being yeah. live on television for me is a little bit like I don't know it just doesn't it doesn't do any th- that much for me personally so I I don't and and what I like about the way we do the songs is that they have a level of polish to them and so I think you know if we like if we eventually do a theater piece with it it'll be different but I don't I personally as as a producer who's you know ass is on the line to make this shit sh- h- h- actually happen I, I just say, it sounds like fine. A, Flip flippin' nightmare, and I'm just picturing our line producer, Sarah Kaplan, whose hair is all white, and I don't know how it would go even whiter, but yeah.
1: Also, you have to understand that when you see the live, you know, Grease live or Christmas Story live, that's a one-off thing. They've been rehearsing for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. Every shot is so meticulously planned. We're a network television show that's an hour-long musical. We are filming while we're writing, while we're editing. We don't have the time to do the rigorous rehearsal needed for a live episode, nor do we have, frankly, the manpower for the cue cards and the teleprompter. so it's a lot of work. So you guys are killing us. What, we're not doing enough for you people? Jesus. (laughs) I actually,
0: I hate watching live things because it just like, it stresses me out. You're just waiting for someone to fall and you feel terrible and, so let's just all agree, (laughs) live things suck. Also, if it was like a
1: live episode and I fucked up, I would 100% break character and be like, well, show's ruined, (laughs) and like the rest, of the episode would just become about me going into like a funny spiral, which is great, uh, because it'd become like this bizarre one-act play, but then like the episode would end and it'd be like, oh my god, uh, we were supposed to kill Rebecca and we didn't have the time. <laughs> oh yeah, Rebecca dies.
0: Okay, good to know, spoiler. Um, I realized I've actually never talked to you guys about just when you're sitting down to tell these stories, how do you decide what is best told through song? How when you're sitting there and you're crafting an episode and it's like, well, no, let's do this.
2: There's a it's bunch called. of um, criteria that we use for that. Um, and one of the things I'll often say to Rachel is, you know, if we're, if we're thinking of an idea for song, I'll say, do we want to sit here? Mm-hmm. Because there's a thing in, you know, the, you have to have a moment that is worthy of sort of explana- exploration and sort of something where you want to kind of stand and look around in a circle. And not every moment, Kind of bears that, you know. So that's, that's one of the ways we look at it. But it's really, it has to be in some ways an emotional high point or low point to really, that really necessitates that. And so that's why we, you know, we've had episodes where we've done one, we've had ones where we've done four. And so it really, we let the story, it comes from the story. And one of the things that Rachel and I bonded on right from the beginning is that the story is the king or the queen. The story is queen. Um, and we let that dictate the song choices.
1: Yeah, I mean, a perfect example of that is not only do we want to live in the emotion, but we want it to be, the songs are are in many ways the emotional thesis statements of the episode. And so a great example of this was in episode 203, um, we know all the episode numbers by heart, <laughs> uh, 203, which is when Rebecca is uh, deciding between Josh and Greg, and... Um, she thinks she might be pregnant for like one scene. And I had originally written um, a song basically based on like kind of dog days are over that was like called A Baby Will Solve Everything. <laughs> and it was really, it was fun. It was like, a baby will solve everything, a baby will solve everything. But you said something really interesting where you're like, but that's not what the episode's about. The episode isn't about her pushing through this baby. It's literally like a beat. And then she's like, oh, never mind, I'm not pregnant. The episode is really about a love triangle, which then it was like, okay, well, So what we want to do is we want to then, the episode is so plot propulsive, and for most of these songs, they're comedy songs, and plot is often the death of comedy when you're doing these musical sketches, which are the songs nine times out of ten. And so it was like, all right, well, what's an emotion that we want to live in? What's a moment of stasis? And it's the, we came to the conclusion, it's the moment of self-indulgence at the top of the episode before everything starts going crazy which turned into the song "The Math of Love Triangles" because that's a moment we wanted to live in and comedically explore and take a beat
2: of this is how this is how Rebecca feels. It's going funny the because that makes it sound like it was like a flow, a flowing, it organic. It was terrible. It was the thing where Rich was like, "But I wrote a fucking song," and then she was like, oh, but it's not right." And then she was sitting at the we have a little dining table in our in our thing, and we were talking about it. And all of a sudden, this like, she was really crabby. And then all of a sudden, this light came on her in her eyes. And she looked at me, and she was like, I got it. I got it. You can go. You can go. You can go. And, um, yeah. and I was like, great. And I tiptoed out. And I got home. And when I got home, the song was done. And it was already in my inbox. And you know, it's, I think the thing about writing the script stuff is that it's, it is, sub, it is um, subject to elbow grease. Like, if something's wrong with the story, we'll just throw the writers in the room and grind on it. Songs are really not like that, and then inspiration needs to be there. So it is a lot. It is really like catching butterflies with a, like a tiny teabag-sized net, you yes, know. So yes. it's it's a much more magical, weird process, and we haven't always managed to figure out how to summon the song gods. But you know, when it comes, and it's obvious, it's like it, it's like a when a deer gives birth and it just plops out all in one go. <laughs> And those are amazing, and I actually don't think that you can tell from the songs which ones were like a miserable upside-down breech birth with like feet sticking out, and which ones just dropped out. You can't really, really tell. You honestly can't. It's no, you can't tell afterwards. But you know, it's it, it it has been for someone like me who doesn't come from music and writing songs to see the magic and watch, you know, like somebody like. We were discussing this, um, a song that we needed for an episode this season, and, and Jack, or the, one of the songwriters just you know, said, without love you can save the world. And it was like, oh, well, all right, who's writing that? I guess that's it, you know? And so it's, it's kind of, you have to wait for the, and because I'm not writing it, Jack, Ra- Rachel, and Adam, um, I'm often just <laughs> following them around being like, so um, how's that song going? Like, is it done? Is it done? Can I have it? Can I have it? Is it done?
1: Yeah, it's really, really hard because I, re- I like to write. Uh, either I come up with ideas, like, on a walk, or I write in the tub. That's, like, what I do. It's how I'm going to die. Because, um, <laughs> like, I have a computer on this bath caddy, oh and it's great. Because you can't, it, it, it lets my imagination go free, but when we're in production it just goes into this different writing process where if i just need to take five minutes i remember who's the new guy the bulk of who's the new guy was written i was walking from the writer's room back to set with jack and we were like we need a song here and it was something we had had like who's this asshole like we had had something like that and i was like well what they should really be asking is, who's the new guy? I was like, dude, 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 what, what if it's like a fucking meta thing? I was like, man, what if it's a meta thing? Like, as I'm like in hair and makeup thing, I'm like, what if it's meta? And it's calling out what the audience thinks about it. And then, so then you just write the lyrics. And I'm like, with the onset writer, Rachel Spector, and being like, here are the jokes of the song. Does this track for you? Okay, here's verse two. What do you think? Like, it's so, it's just so like run and gun and crazy. And just to take you through like the comedic process of a song like The Math of Love Triangles, just because I, it came in like steps so like. So, first it started with the emotional impulse of, like, okay, we wanna do a song about her, like, loving being in a love triangle. Okay, what is that emotion? What music genre does that emotion call to mind? Marilyn Monroe, right? This kind of innocent baby self indulgence. Okay, what? Okay, it's a song about being in a love triangle. Well, a lot of these songs from then, also, I watched every episode of Smash, so that probably (laughs) influenced it. Uh, Sure, give it up for Smash. A valiant, valiant effort. Um, <laughs> uh, um, but there were a lot of like puns, like cutesy, cutesy puns. So then it was like, okay, the math of love triangles. But then when I wrote out just the song without the guys, it was like, this actually could just be a cute m- song in a musical because it was like hypotenuse and it was like, oh, the thing that take- that makes it our show and makes it a laugh out loud funny rather than clever, like, oh, that's cute funny, is the guys calling her out on her shit. In often ways that don't rhyme, and Adam and Adam Schlesinger, I have grown to like rhymes a little more. But but doing rhyming in comedy is hard because in order to get an actual like, and in order to get a, someone to laugh rather than appreciate your clever witticisms, you have to surprise someone. And if you see the rhyme coming, unless unless it's a really good rhyme, you won't laugh. You'll just appreciate the rhyme. And so I like to subvert rhymes, and Adam has um adam and i have adam has steered me more on the path of rhyming but i'll still say fuck the rhyme a lot
0: (laughs) so then in terms you decide genre just kind of like on the fly
2: usually the idea usually comes packaged with a genre um usually as soon as the idea comes up it's like oh without love you can save the world for example it was like that already sounded like kind of a Hippie, you know, sort of um, Age of Aquarius kind of thing. So often the, the genre comes along with it. We haven't sweat a lot um, picking the genres, but sometimes when we have songs that aren't a super clear genre, sometimes it, those are a little bit more difficult to nail in the execution. But look, at this point, Rachel, Adam, and Jack have written 115 songs as of season three. And... And I can't stress this enough, no one has ever done that. No one has ever done that. That's, that's in about, you know, with, with the breaks that we have, that's in about 18 months of, of songwriting's time. And so, you know, a Broadway musical can take 10 years and have 15 songs in it. That's 115 songs in three seasons. That is remarkable.
0: Yeah. Well, I'll use Elaine's wording. What have been the more difficult births when it came to the songs?
2: Uh, I mean, Shit Show was the shit show. Um, the season three theme song was I Thought People Were Gonna Have to Be Hospitalized.
1: We, well, probably was, have, we probably have
2: we probably have twenty five or thirty dead ones. Yeah,
1: Adam and I, Adam, Jack, and I, and, and Aline, want to do a show maybe in L.A. at some point, just called the Theme Song Show, where we sing all of the rejected, thrown out theme songs for season three. And the reason it was difficult was because so we we had various versions of theme songs that got the revenge angle. But Alina and I, at that point, had broken out. We met for a very significant period of time before the writer's room started and really arced out the season. So we knew a, that Rebecca was... The, the revenge thing was going to be kind of dropped by episode four. So we didn't want a revenge right. song because that would be dropped. And so it was very... It was a hard plane to land. And it was really, really hard because one of us would think, oh, we have it, like, Jack, Adam, and I all did passes on theme song separately. And one of us would be like, oh, we have it! And one of us then would just be like, no, you don't. This is not good. And it was, yeah, it was really hard. It was
0: really hard. Well, I think I've talked to both of you throughout season three about how, in so many ways, this season kind of feels like what the show was always kind of intended to be, and it feels so great. And I'm just curious, in your opinion, Why do you feel like that is? What do you think it is about season three that just feels so right, that is working so well?
2: Well, there are all various versions of being an obsessed romantic person. And the first one was delusion, right? So the first one was just like, oh, my God, you're in Starbucks? I'm in Starbucks. That's weird. (laughs) It happens that I drove 80 minutes to be in your Starbucks, but that's weird. Um, So the first one was really delusional. And the second one was that thing where you wake up next to a guy and you're like, you will love me. But then this one was really what you expect from a crazy ex girlfriend, which was she's bugging him, she's stalking him, she's trying to exact revenge. And then, you know, there's after that, he's everyone around her is deeply concerned about her because she has ridden off the rails. So, in a lot of ways, it's sort of you know, if it was a movie, it would have been the, um, you know, the middle part of the movie, the second part of the second act. So it is like the emotional crescendo. And we always knew that writing it. And we always knew that the first season would be a little bit more light, fluffy rom-com where we always protected Rebecca. It was never her fault. It was always Paula's fault. It was always, she was well-meaning. And this is a much less repentant, Rebecca, and not—it's interesting to see some people love this one, and some people love the more innocent one, um, and the you know last year's one, which was like she thought she was in Romeo and Juliet or something. That's yet another version. So that's how we had always pitched the show, which was you know the different stages of romantic obsession, and this was I think an inevitable one.
1: Yeah, and I—it was. In, I'm thinking about it now. We said this season was going to be like funny, fatal attraction. But really, and it was, episode four kind of was, but really what I think more importantly it was was um, deconstructed and demystified Fatal Attraction rather than, as we say in episode four, like that brilliant line, like the monster must be killed that you came up with. Um, we then explored her point of view. I mean, Fatal Attraction is a, is, is a great example of a movie about someone with borderline personality disorder. And of course, the end of that movie is, was her killing herself. But audiences were like, they felt emotionally unresolved. They wanted the monster to be killed, so it was couched in a more like male gaze ending, if you will.
2: I mean, here's the thing about revenge is it doesn't do anything. It doesn't solve anything. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't feel particularly good. It's nothing. It is a very um, self-immolating act. And once she's achieved it, she feels worse than ever.
0: Well, we saw in the clip before we came out here that... She make, Rebecca makes a very big decision. it's something I was very proud of. I have to say, watching as a fan of the show for you all, like what is the importance of that moment, and how is it
1: going to kind of affect her relationships with all of those people? Well, what I love about the second half of this season is that so the first half was very much finally dealing with the idea of okay what's going on with her, let's talk about her mental health, let's talk about what's going on inside. But the show is, you know, started with romance. And so the second half of the season then takes these two ideas. Okay, well, let's now start putting these realizations she's having about her own mental health with romance because, you know, it's um, everyone needs partnership and she's, she's deserving of love and, as Dr. Copian says, worthy of love. And the other thing that we combine is, okay, so we've dealt with the idea of what... What are the things she's dealing with in her mind that she was born with or from her childhood that she can't really control, that she needs to deal with? And then there, the other thing is personal responsibility, which is the thing we haven't dealt with. And it, those two things clashing really, really come to a head in this brilliant finale, I have to say, um, co-written by Aline and directed by Aline. Um, and it's just, yes. I love this finale. It's one of my top five episodes of the series. And and, it's and one of wonderful. the things
2: that we explore is like... Rebecca gets away with everything. I mean, she's done terrible things, and we, because we love ingenues, because we like love leads, because we always empathize with leads, and because Rachel is supernaturally winning, we don't judge her. But she has a lot to answer for. And I think, you know, one of the really exciting things for us was, you know, there's a scene where she's actually wondering, why do I get away with everything? Um, And she has not been called on the carpet. And it's interesting because people often want the other characters in the show. be called to account for what they've done but she is the one who has said a lot of this awfulness in motion and she is the one ultimately who has to take responsibility for that
1: yeah and there have been definitely fans who reached out to i i there have been fans who reached out and they're like well all the stuff she did to josh you know she was a very that she was emotionally abusive and she stalked him yes a hundred percent and she has not taken responsibility for that so it's something we're very aware of of all of the things she's done that she's not paid for.
0: Sure. I want to take it back for a moment. For you guys, when you were getting going on this show, was there a moment when you realized, like, you knew it would work? Whether it was seeing an episode or audience reaction to it, but you just thought, like, we have
2: something. This is well. This happen. is a great transition. Um, And I'm going to embarrass someone who's very shy. But in the audience tonight is the director of our pilot, Mark Webb. And I'm not going to make him stand up because he's a shy gentleman. Um, Marky, where are you? But you know, we were we were working on this show. He's here. Okay. Um, We were working on this show. Rachel, you know, had done her YouTube stuff, but was not a known quantity. And one of the things that I had not told people was that I had never seen Rachel act. I had seen her in her videos, and I'd seen her do stand-up, and I knew she was really funny. And as we were getting prepped for the pilot, Mark said to me, you know, Mark had this ultimate faith in Rachel always, and it was one of the reasons he was such a good pick for it, and you know, he was this fancy, famous director, and here we had this up-and-coming girl, and and we got Mark, and it was such a big deal. And I remember him saying to me at some point in prep, "Um, can she act? And I was like, 100%, she's amazing. (laughs) And I will ne- so the first thing we shot was a music video, which, of course, she was brilliant in, as I expected her to be, because that's what she'd been doing, for, and she has a high level of confidence and expertise in that. And then we got to her first acting scene, um, and I, you know, just to drop a whole bunch of names, I mean, I've worked with Meryl Streep and Anne Hathaway and Emily Blunt and Catherine Heigl and, like, really gifted, you know, actor comedians, and as, as soon as she started, I was like, oh, we're set. And that was really the moment that I knew that you know we had something very special.
0: Aww. Well, I do just want to touch on—it blows my mind every time I'm reminded that like you all haven't been working together for like 30 years. And what is it kind of about this partnership? Since Rachel's birth. <laughs> yeah. yeah, basically.
1: Um, Aline came to the hospital. <laughs> I was crowning. I was
2: like, where is the song? Where is the song? Where's the
1: song? She caught the placenta. (laughs) She put it in a backpack. She turned it into a PDF. What?
0: (laughs) But just what is it you guys feel like about your partnership that works so well? We we were just just talking talking about about this 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 morning. morning.
2: (laughs) And uh, Uh, (laughs) um, what are you willing to share, Aline? (laughs) So I think part of the reason people are brought together is to help heal their traumas. And, you know, we met, it was a blind date, I just saw Rachel's work, and I loved it, and I wanted to meet with her, and, you know, I met her, and I was really enchanted with her right away, and we we formed this little, you know, the first little skin of the ice of the bond right away, but I think it has taken us five years to peel more and more to find out, we have so many deep, deep similarities, and as women who are, you know, we have Twenty years apart in age, we grew up on different coasts. My parents are immigrants. You know, we we've had very different experiences, but we have had we have such strong commonality. And to be honest with you, I'm I'm a bit of a snob, and I only really really like smart people. And Rachel's really 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 smart, guys. Thanks. Yeah, I mean it's
1: funny. Um, all I can say is. Uh, I'm usually like an open book about stuff but there are a lot of things that Alina and I have in common that uh just like just trust us we have them in common and it's just kind of cuz they're like they're really personal and yeah. and involve other people and things but um we it's a very very like deep understanding that we have and it's And the funny. age you
2: know it's funny our age difference almost never comes up um mainly because Like, Rachel doesn't, her pop culture references are all show tunes anyway. (laughs) So she wouldn't know what Bachman-Turner Overdrive was anyway. Um, So we don't don't have the same, but- You made that up. That's not a thing. That's a band from the 70s. Who knows what Bachman-Turner Overdrive is? What song do they sing? Taking care really? of business every day. So I'm th- there such are writers a in our room. Loser. There are writers in our writers room who are even older than me, and they know the '70s references. But Rachel doesn't. But the the our age difference doesn't come up, and that's one of the reasons that the central relationship on the show is between two women who are, have the same age difference. And it never occurs to me that it's weird. And somebody once said to me, you know, do do you think it's strange that all of Paula's friends are really young? And I was like, nope.
1: Well, I mean,
0: you mentioned, obviously, that has made its way onto the show. Have other kind of things, like from your own personal experiences, made, their, made its way onto the show? <laughs>
2: oh, boy. So much, and also with the writer's room. I mean, there's you know, you're writing 44 episodes, so many things from our lives and the writer's room life, and I'll tell you, the most direct one we've ever done was once a week, Rachel's husband, Gregor, and his um, writing partner, Doug Mand, they come in once a week and they consult, and we were doing an episode where we knew we wanted a lot of storylines and we were doing a storyline for Josh and Doug told this long story about how he was bartending and he picked up a bunch of dirty glasses and didn't wash his hands and then popped a zit because he had a date and then he got a giant staph infection on his face that was so huge, and then the doctors wouldn't let him touch it when he was in the hospital, so it just, like, a long string of stuff oozed out of his face for a day or so. And I was like, I got no notes on that. (laughs) So that, we have that in our episode, except instead of it just oozing out, he gets hit in the face, and he... But, like, we actually have the close-up on the dirty glasses, and the whole... We did the whole thing. That's probably the most one-to-one that we've ever one-to-one.
1: done. one I have one for text emergency. <laughs> I told, it's one personal story. It wasn't me. Do you remember the story? I won't share her name. But basically, um, Well,
2: everyone's told, sent a text to the wrong person. Well,
1: yeah, yeah. Well, the one that I was talking about was, and this is just schadenfreude, uh, I was, okay, when I was doing this music video, Fuck Me, Ray Bradbury, which was the first music video I ever did. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Aline still has not seen it. Um, it's, it's good. But it's fine. You you know me. It's fine. Um, I'd only seen twenty seven. Took dresses. you four years to watch twenty seven. It dresses, did. bitch. It did. I don't care.
2: <laughs> like at all.
1: I still haven't seen We Bought a Zoo. Okay. That's fine. That's so fine. Okay, great. Um. So this is just like a great text accidental texting story that like because usually the person who. I feel like commit social faux pas is me. Um, so it's really fun to watch someone else do it. <laughs> so I was filming Fuck Mary Bradbury. I, I literally uh, rented out this old, uh, I, w- I filmed it here, and it was this place in Brooklyn that was like a, a, an old Catholic school that then you could, but was still owned by the church, so you could rent it out for donations. So I rented out the entire old Catholic school for $200. <laughs> and I produced the thing myself, so I wouldn't have to pay a producer. I paid the DP 400, I paid the director, Paul Berganti, 250 to direct, 250 to edit. So everyone else I was like, can anyone help me out for free? And so my friend said that she, my friend, this is, I promise this story. Well, it's, I've never told it, okay, it might be a shitty story. <laughs> okay. My friend, who I worked at a restaurant with, said she'd be a PA. Now part of the reason she said she'd be a PA was I was doing at the time, a show at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater where one of the sketches was Seasons of Love sung in Klingon. (laughs) There's a video of me singing it online, it's online. Um, And I needed someone to translate Klingon. She said, I know Klingon, I can translate it for you. (laughs) It's a week away from the show, she still hasn't gotten me the Klingon. And I'm like, hey, where's the Klingon? She's like, I'm so sick today. You're going to have to get someone else to translate Klingon for you. And I was like, I'm broke. I need Seasons of Love translated into Klingon by tomorrow, because we need to learn it. And so I went online to a free translation site, found a guy in Germany who did it for free. And I sent him my Google translation of Klingon, and he laughed at me. He was like, that's not where the verbs go. It was wonderful. I still have this emails. I still have this email somewhere. I can still do it. I'll do it for you later. So anyway, <laughs> this girl comes to fuck me, Ray Bradbury, to PA, and she shows up, and I'm starring in the thing, but also line producing the thing. So I'm literally like doing a take, and they call cut, and I'm just like, "Hey, hey, just go over there. I'll tell you what to do. I'll tell you where to get lunch. Thank you so much for being here." And she's like, oh, "Okay." So there's a break, and I look at my phone, and I get a text from her that says, "Ugh, I don't even know what I'm doing here." Like, I don't even know why I'm coming to help Rachel. Like, it's so awkward. Like, they don't need me here. Like, I'm just going to go. And so I get this text. And she's already fucked me over on the Klingon song once. And she knows she has. So I get this text. And it was this joyous moment where I'm just looking at the phone. And I'm waiting to see her see her phone. So this is me in the corner standing looking at my phone. And this is her. Wait, let me see. This is literally her. She goes. <laughs> and she looks up at me and I go. <laughs> so that was a great day. Wait, but then she came over to you and she said. She went, oh, oh, right. Well, this was the part. Because <laughs> the, the best part about it, a text catastrophe or text-emergency is the excuse. She goes. <laughs> She's crying. Oh, God. Uh, She's... Bless her heart. She's crying. But she goes... She goes, did you get my funny text? (laughs) Literally, she's crying. She goes, I I was sending you a a funny text, but I realized that the the joke didn't go through because I texted it the joke, and I meant to then text LOL with a wink face, and it didn't go through, but did you you get the joke? (laughs) Wait, what did you say? I said...
2: Did she say you should just go home, honey?
1: Well, what I said to her, I was like, listen, if I really don't, like, I get it, you're doing this for free. I was like, if you really don't want to be here, this is my first music video. Like, I've put a lot of money and effort into this. I'm exhausted. I really don't want someone here who doesn't want to be here. She goes, no, I want to be here. I want to be here so bad. No, I I love it here. I love it. I love it so much. I want to be here so bad. But but nobody was. It was a joke, because the joke was like, she just dug and she was like, the joke was Fucking bitch. (laughs) Fucking ruined my So I just will always, I mean, it was, I, I really, really feel for her on that day. Although I will never forgive her for not getting the fucking Klingon translation. If you, okay, this is what the last thing I'll say on this subject, and then I will never talk about it again. If you say to someone unprompted, I didn't even ask her. I said, gee, who knows Klingon? She goes, oh my God, I know Klingon. Let me translate it for you. And I went, really? Are you sure? Yes, I'll do it today. Two weeks later, nothing. Don't do that. <laughs> Either you, if you know the Klingon and you don't want to do the work, don't don't dick me over.
2: <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts. A life lesson.
1: <laughs> Wait, I'll sing you the first word. It goes, vach b'tshov, vach shodjavov, choaf lola. That's Klingon. That was such a long story, but her fucking excuse. Okay, let's go on. Of all the things I expected tonight, that was 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 not one. Klingon is not dissimilar to like a Yiddish sound. Coincidence, yes. (laughs)
0: One of my favorite parts of watching this show is just to see, like, just how far you guys can push the envelope and how edgy, like, certain songs can be. What are you maybe most proud of getting on the CW at this point?
1: Uh, cocksuredness. Cocksuredness. But here's the amazing thing about that is... It was originally, the, the lyric in the song was originally like, I say you're so mean, but dude, I'm so wet. And then I had like a water ball I was going to dance myself with. And it went in you, Wendo. And she's like, you cannot. Uh, our friend Patricia at Standards and Practices, with whom we are best friends, said, you can't say I'm so wet. Like, you just, you can't. Like, the show doesn't take, it, the
2: song didn't take I place in a I was also very proud of my ball smell weird. I was not going to let that ship go down on ball smell weird. And so I, I pitched Rachel the stress ball because that we would, be able to do it if she was holding a stress ball and she really didn't want to do it because it made it like a corny pun but it was when we first started to realize how we could work within the strictures and actually we kind of enjoy the strictures in a way and, and I I actually think that if we had been a cable show I mean Mark Webb will tell you like I was very afraid that we were going to be pushed to sort of exploit Rachel's naked body frankly and um, so I, I am actually kind of pleased that we're in a place that has a little bit of chastity to it, and I think it also has opened up the show to a different generation of um, viewers because it's it, it can be seen by younger people. And Patricia, who is our standard and practices person, actually wanted to be a filmmaker. And she understands what we're doing. So when we get notes from her, she's like, look, I understand you want to do this. You can do this, but not that. So actually, um, we never feel like we're gaming them. And those people rescued our show. I mean, I can't, I don't know how many people in this audience are aspiring writers or filmmakers, but, um, and Mark can attest to this. You know, we made a brilliant pilot. We knew it was good. I knew Rachel was brilliant in it. And when Showtime passed on it, I cannot express to you the extent to which no one wanted it. There's no way I can adequately express to you how many fucking people said no to that pilot. Everyone. Every single person who works in television saw it and said no to us. And we heard every different reason for why they were passing on it. And it was so painful to me. It was so painful to Mark. It was so painful to Rachel. And I remember thinking, well, at least Rachel will have a beautiful sample of her work to show people. But my God, that was so painful. And the CW appeared out of a mist, riding on a white horse, Mark Pedowitz, and saved our ass. And like... I can't say enough for, this is not a, you know, an edgy, hip thing to say, but we are so supported by our network always, always, always. So you know if we can't show somebody's boobs or we can't show a blowjob, it's like such a small price to pay <laughs> for the, the creative freedom we enjoy there, which is total and the complete support of that network. It is the most supported. I've been doing this forever. I've been a writer since 1991. It is the most supportive I had ever been by any network, any studio, any corporate entity in my life by a mile. Has there been a
0: moment when the audience response to something really surprised you all? You did not expect them to love something, not love something?
1: I'll tell you what I thought. I thought people were going to send me death threats, send us death threats when she fucked Greg's dad. Oh, wow. I, I I was like, because it was a necessary part. It was something we'd been planning for a while, and I was like, oh, they're going to be upset. And I am so, I was actually so impressed with um, the fans that from what I saw, and I don't, Aline has better stomach for, for, Checking. Reading online stuff, yeah. Aline will go on the Crazy X Reddit sometimes, which yeah. I do. I not... won't comment on it, but I'll look at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So if you write on the Reddit in here, because I know there's some little Reddit spies. No, I'm kidding. Um, uh, uh, um I, I can't do it because I will just automatically seek out the insult and then it'll ruin my day. Um, uh, but, but, but from what I saw, the fans were like, oh, I totally get it. Of course, she spiraled and that needed to happen. I was really, really impressed.
2: I was really bowled over by the um, response to Daryl coming out. I, you know, that was a story we were excited about doing. We were excited about doing the song, but that has meant so much to people. And it was the first storyline that we did where I really felt like, wow, we really, this is a powerful medium that speaks to people in their personal lives. And, you know, people have sung that song and, and on their own personal, you know, Twitters and Facebook. And, and it really meant something to people and it touched something really personal in them. And I think the ultimate just profound sweetness of Pete um, melded with the sweetness of Daryl that that story really I I was really uh, bowled over by people's response to that
0: what do you feel like I feel like (laughs) yeah Um, even just the clip we saw tonight I feel like is such a big turning point for Rebecca just you know taking responsibility for you guys what have been kind of the biggest turning points for this show along the way
2: well, episode nine, I would say, was, was the first one.: Yeah that. The first episode, there's a season in the bu- there's an episode in the bus. And that's the episode where it comes out that she invented this uh, job, that she moved there. She, she made it up, and she's outed. Um, and (laughs) we were working on that script in the writer's room, and we had gotten to kind of an impasse, and I felt like, you know, television shows can be very coy about their storylines and sort of drag things on forever, and you know it's going to happen, it seems like it's taking forever, and I remember saying to the room, well, we could just have somebody say it and have her admit it, and it can just happen, that she's like, no, I just ran into you, and that's why I came here, and the writer's room, it was just pandemonium. It was People were like, you cannot do that. You can't explode your series, episode nine. You can't do it. And it was really funny because Rachel was on set working, and I was like, Rachel's going to love it. And they were like, what are you talking about? And um, I was like, hold on a second. And I ran up to set, and I said, and I told Rachel about it, and she was like, 1,000%. And we went back, and we did it. And it it sort of established our... Um, I would say, you know, recklessness about we just blow stuff if we get somewhere where like the bridge seems like it needs to get blown up, we just do it. um and I think I actually think that's a pattern that's set in the pilot where Paula goes from being an adversary to her friend at the end of one episode, and that's not that would normally on a show take maybe you know a season. so uh, a lot of times when we get somewhere and the you know, that there is a Rubicon to be crossed. We just, we just cross it. And so that's been freeing. Yeah,
1: I mean, when I think of real turning points, obviously the you know, season finales, but um, I don't think, like, you know, episode six of this year when she got diagnosed, you can't really go back from right. that. It's only forward-moving. No matter how much she regresses, she then now has the knowledge that she has borderline, and, and you, can't, you can't unopen that box.
0: Yeah. sure. Are those, the, has there been any moment that almost like, I don't know if scared is the right word, but scared or intimidated you all because it was, you know, it would change the show. It would that change That
2: song, the that song, that diagnosis Diagnosis
1: song. was really, was scary for me because like I, uh, I worry that people would think it was cheesy. Hi. Hi, what does that say? Oh, what does that say? Oh, it's Samantha, questions from the questions. audience. Um, uh,
2: Samantha, your mother's calling.
1: That'd be great. That would be amazing. Um, It's an earnest song, and there's you know there's a version of that diagnosis song where I could have played it very like for almost thirty years a diag you know and there was a way to have played it that was very mocking it and we decided in the recording booth not to do that and the earnestness of that song was scary because I was like what if this is cheesy this is such a high risk of cheese. and and I was the one who spearheaded that song. And like, I don't know, sometimes when, when things feel really emotional for me when I'm writing, there's a part of me that like, I don't know, art's really subjective. Like, mm. I, this could be bad. Like, to me, this is emotionally true. And to me, this feels good. But like, there's always a part because it doesn't feel mathematical. I come from writing sketch comedy. And the reason I love writing sketch comedy is there's a math to it. And there is a logic and there's a... I am heightening this joke. No one can say that I'm not heightening this joke in this way. It is quantifiable. It is a mathematical formula almost. But when you're doing something like songwriting, which is emotional, it's really, really, really risky when you put your heart on the table in something like Diagnosis or Stupid Bitch, where it's like, this song could just be weird. I don't know, because I don't have the like mathematical, like above it allness to tell.
0: Okay, our first audience question is, what inspired each of you to even start writing and then for Rachel, write and act?
2: Um, well, let's see, I, I always wrote, I as a child, I always wanted to be a writer, but it seemed like a ridiculous thing to do. And I, oh, I kind of always knew that I didn't want to write fiction, that I didn't want to write prose. Um, And so I didn't really know what that would be. I did some journalism in college. I directed a lot of plays. And so I wrote a book right when I graduated with my college roommate. And she was much more certain that she wanted to be a writer. And I would not be a writer if it were not for her, Stacey Lip. Because she was absolutely determined to be a writer. And so she was... Going to do it, and she said, "Why don't we do this together?" So we wrote a book together, and then she left to become a TV writer. And I thought, you know, I what I really love is movies, so I'll try that. And if it doesn't work, I'll go to Plan B. And I, I never got to Plan B, so I was I was lucky in that way. Um, but writing stories. Um, you know, when you're writing um, film and television, you're not really writing for the prose expression. You're writing for the storytelling. And that was where I really found my joy. It's very, very, very difficult to craft a good story. And I, it's the thing that I'm always proudest of more than dialogue or anything like that is really a good propulsive story. Is, And I think in some ways it's a I don't want to say it's a vanishing art because that makes me sound like an old lady, but there is, I think, a tendency to like. It's just easy to be like this happened and then this happened and then this happened. So I really admire crafted narrative, um, and so I found my my way towards that, and that was a, a an area where I felt comfortable being uh, a writer, and where you know the my form of self expression is a little bit cloaked because it always happens through fictional characters. And Rachel's really fearless in disclosing herself, and I found a form that allows me to sort of hide a little bit. And, and um, yeah, so it's, it, it was, a, way, it was a, a thing of wanting to be a writer and then being in search of, like, what was the right form. Rachel?
1: Um, I, I mean, I, I was thinking about the—I was thinking about this— um, so I always liked, really liked English class. But um, <laughs> when I was 11, there was a school talent show, and my friend and I like wrote a skit, and like I knew it was bad, <clears throat> and and I was like, I know I can do better. Like I know I'm funny, and I had just been like taking acting classes where we kind of were learning. We were doing these exercises where we kind of were doing like a rudimentary form of improv. And I'll never forget, like I was in the shower. And this is actually why I still write in the bath. I was in the shower, my mind was totally free, and in the shower, I just made up a sketch from start to finish starring me, and it's called the Me Station. And it's literally a television station starring one person where I like played all the roles. It was Basically, I realize now a rip off of the Gilda Radner sketch Judy Miller show, but no one knew that. Um, <laughs> like, I, it was a subconscious rip off of that. And I performed it in the school talent show, and uh, around I performed it in fifth grade and this was right around the time I was starting to get really, really made fun of in school. I was also, um, that was when my depression started getting really bad and it was like, I got back people's respect with that sketch. It was the first time I performed a joke that I'd written that made people laugh. And I was like, this is what I want to be doing. I want to be performing my own writing to like take back control of my narrative. This
0: is a totally different direction question. What inspired the song Period Sex?
2: You know, <clears throat> I want to say that we were in the writer's room. We were, I remember this. And that um, we, somebody said something, well no, it's because she finds out she's not pregnant by getting her period, and then the writer's room naturally went to period sex, and Rachel happened to be in the writer's room, and she started riffing, and it was interesting, because she started riffing, and then I remember she walked out the no, door. No, 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 there's
1: two Wait, you go There's on. two
2: things. Because I remember the the room riffing on it separately and then you coming back. But so, you're going to remember it better than I. So here's, we were in the room because I was still in the writer.
1: we hadn't started filming it. So we're riffing on Rebecca gets her period. And I'm like, oh, that's so funny. And she's saying like, let's, let's have sex now. Let's have sex because she's manic. And I was like, oh, it'd be funny if she sings a song that's just like period sex, period sex. And then Josh is like, shut the fuck up, like interrupts the song. And we really, really liked that bit. So we knew in the script for a long time, there was going to be the start of a song called period sex. That would theoretically be very disgusting. That Josh would stop. I left the room a couple days later because Audrey Walkup and Rachel Specter wrote that script. I, someone came up with the line. It wasn't me. All I came up with was period sex. Period sex. Someone came up with put down a towel, party till it's dry, which is
2: brilliant. We, we actually we couldn't remember who came up with it, but Elizabeth thought she did, so Elizabeth has the credit for that. But it was it was kind of a room period sex is kind of something that lends itself to a room bit. Yeah. Um, but here's what I want to tell you about period sex. <laughs> Rachel tried to get it in every single episode. A hundred percent. So <laughs> She would not stop pitching it. Yeah. Well, there were a couple things at stake. Sorry, so my dress wants to come undone. Keep talking. Your dress like, wants I'm to come like undone? I'm like that figure skater. You know, the figure skater whose dress came undone? No, that happened. God, I don't yeah, know yeah, anything. Yeah, yeah, lady. Anyway, keep going. Um, I'm fine. I don't watch the Olympics because it's sports. Um... <laughs>
1: It's very, very bad. Um, okay, so we had to record some track for period sex. So I went into the vocal booth just to record period sex, put down a towel, party till it's dry. And I'm in the booth and I'm like, should we just like make this a full silly song at some point to do in the show maybe or online or I don't know? And Adam was like, yeah, I can just extend the track and you can riff over it. I was like, well, hold on, hold on. I'm not just going to riff. It needs to be written. So I came back. 30 seconds later (laughs) or like 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 two minutes later with like some lyrics and really what I just thought of the like most kind of gross imagery imaginable because it's not a song that's saying anything meaningful about period sex the whole point is that just Rebecca's singing this kind of very gross graphic stuff about period sex um and so we recorded that so I knew we had that in our back pocket and then I just love the bit so much I tried to get it in every episode to the point where When it was in episode seven with uh, Brittany Snow in the clinic, it wasn't in the script. I'd fought for it, and I just improvised it. And I was like, because it was cut from the script. And I was like, you know what? I want to do one more take where I do the period sex joke, because it's going to get in this. And then we put a track under that
2: improv, and maybe change it. Another example of that is the run about the spiders, the apostrophe with the spiders. Oh, I fought so hard for that. (laughs) Rachel kept walking back in the room to being like, please, put it in, put it back in. And uh, it's funny, and you were right. Uh, uh, Here's my question. Remember, you danced so hard when it got in. I knew I was right, and like,
1: why (laughs) did you... Here's my question to you. I've never asked you. Why did you not like the spiders bit originally?
2: Because it was off story at a point in the episode where we were trying to be on story. But it, it, it you know, we we were we we got more comfortable. You'll know if you watch the show with extraneous bits as we went on.
1: <laughs> That's another bit that I'm surprised we got past S and P. By the way, is, is I don't know it, the bit that you came up with brilliantly in the room was a uh, Hector describing anal sex via parking. <laughs> yeah.
2: But that is that is a classic room bit. That is something that was, you know, uh, one of the joys of working in a writer's room is you have a joke area, and then everybody pitches in something. And um, we have a really lovely uh, female writer who ended who ended up pitching the uh, the last line of the thing is like, "Well, I can always park in the back." Um, <laughs> and so that's a classic, classic room bit, which is something where there's we're in an area, and then you know we maybe had 20 lines for that parking bit. Um, but it, it's a double meaning, so they're they're cool with that.
0: <laughs> okay, what is a musical style you'd love to explore, and which characters would you want to see in it, in that sort of scene or bit?
2: You know, we don't work backwards in that way, so it's we don't like set out to say like we're gonna do this and that. So um, I don't, I don't, we don't really ever walk around saying like, oh, let's wedge in a blah. But Rachel has a lot of like really minute. <laughs> musical theater references. I'll
1: tell you one, one wish thing I have on my wish list that just occurred to me before A writer's Room last summer that's not a musical theater that we might not do, so don't get your hopes up, is uh, White Josh doing a David Byrne talking head style song. Because he's very logical, and he's very like wordy, and those songs are kind of um, the lyrics are like very, very dense and important. Again, that might not happen, so just calm down.
0: This is a very timely question. If Crazy Ex Girlfriend were to become a Broadway show, who would be your dream cast?
2: Uh, You know, we're, it's it's a dream of ours and it's something we've started talking about and we've started to talk to people about, but we are gonna be, um, we will keep everyone posted about that as it goes along. (laughs) Nice.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Is it difficult to wear the double hat and both act and produce at the same time? Any kind of fun, challenging stories?
2: Yes. (laughs) Any stories about juggling those things? I mean, it's crazy. You know, Rachel and I have had story conferences where she was naked a lot. (laughs) Like a lot, because she's changing, she's running back, and like, we're always trying to work together and have a conversation, and because I'm in the writer's room, she's on set, and we don't get to see each other, so we're... Often, you know, I'm running to her, and, and, and <clears throat> a lot of what I do is manage Rachel's workload because she can't read 15 outlines. She can only read the one. She can't read every draft. She can't watch every. So I try and ma- have her only see it when it's the most meaningful thing. I will say the one thing that Rachel does that's really her area is supervising the cuts of the music videos. And, um, so I know when I, when we get an, an edited version of the episode, if those don't work, I know Rachel's going to fix them, but she has to physically go into editing to do it. It's not something where she can give them notes. So just imagine every costume you have seen Rachel in, in this show, she was in that in editing. So somebody goes and gets her and pulls her and says, you have 45 minutes now. And she sprints across to the editing room, you know, dressed as a cactus. <laughs> and gives notes on the edit of the songs. And that has to be done by her. And so we're we're always, I would say, you know, the whole production has figured out how to accommodate Rachel. And, and look, one of the things, one of the reasons that Mark was also lovely on the pilot and our line producer is so great is like, protecting Rachel's health and well-being is job one of the show and so we try and make sure that she is not exhausted and overwhelmed but her just the acting that and the singing that she does is a complete full-time job for anyone and the fact that on top of that she has you know she has to be on top of the writing process and she is always writing a song so the the the, the, act, the um actors will tell you that Rachel's got her little blue computer and she is Literally, always, I there's write always the hair, writing yeah. a song.
1: I write in the hair chair, I write in the makeup chair. Like, as she's, I'll just ask if I can look down and type. I'm writing at Video Village.
2: And it's stressful yeah. because it needs it's to be done crazy. and I can't do it. And it's really, you know, if there's script stuff to be done, I can just get it done. But if there's the song stuff, a lot of times it, it has to be Rachel. And a lot of times, if it's a really song that's personal to Rachel, like Jack and Adam are not finishing, you know, stupid bitch, Rachel has to do it. So, we, we, have, we have worked out um, some systems that work well, and one of them is I just kind of see whether she's falling apart and try and intercede. And, you know, there was a time this year where I really, I looked at her and I was like, she is not going to make it through today, so we're going to reschedule everything so that, that she actually, can take a three-hour three hap- nap.
1: That had only happened like twice, but this yeah. year there was something, I don't know if I had too much coffee that day or... Or I was just really stressed, but it was we were filming the episode that just aired, the twelfth episode, and like it was literally the day we filmed the sugar face buttload of cats scene, and I, I was just feeling. I think it was because I had to, you know, this the the multitasking stresses me out when I have to literally do all of it within the span of, um, like a minute. Like I'm fine going to editing for forty five minutes and just thinking about editing and then acting and then focusing. But it's when I'm on set trying to write a song, and they're like, we need you on set right now, that really fucks with me. And it was one of those days, and we're in the table read for the season finale, and I just remember feeling like numb and cold, and my chest was closing, and I was like, I I think I'm having my first panic attack. And I was like, so I literally can't act today, because
2: I'm having a panic attack. And so... One of the things, this is gonna sound really corny, but one of the things about our show is largely run by women, and largely run by moms and the show is run with love. And I know that sounds really corny, but like you need to create that environment of love and affection so that, you know, after the table read, Rachel looked at me and she's like, I am not gonna make it through today. I feel like shit and I need to go be in my office for three hours and I go to our line producer, Sarah Kaplan, who is a mom and she is, we move stuff around and we move something so that Rachel had four hours off, but by the way, she then had to wake up and go do a scene. so yeah. it is it never ends. it's dependent on her um, and you know the rest of us that have deadlines on that show like we can look like shit or show up and you know we don't have to perform, and she's you know sometimes really wrestling with creative stuff she has to do, and then she's being pulled out to perform so I don't it's, it's so I'm going to be saying this for months. I can't understand and this sounds really these are fancy problems, and this sounds really complaining, but I can't understand why Rachel's not been nominated for an Emmy, because she, it's like it's like you know Ginger's doing what Fred does but backwards and in heels. Rachel's doing what all these amazing actresses who we all love who have gotten nominated. She's doing that and then all this other stuff and singing. So sometimes when I see somebody another actor and I'm like, yeah, that was good, but you know, did she sing? <laughs> I mean, Meryl was good in that, but did she sing in that one? I mean, you know, so I, I, I just feel like the, the, what she's doing, I grew up worshiping Carol Burnett, but Rachel's doing that, plus she's responsible for so much of the creative part of it. So I just think she should be nominated for an Emmy.
1: Thank you. To demystify that for those of you who don't know how a word show's work, just a quick crash course. Um, The uh, Emmys are voted on by the Television Academy, of which there are 18,000 members. 18,000. The Hollywood Foreign Press, the Golden Globes, have 90 people. The Tony Awards have 800 people. The Television Academy has 18,000. Now, when it comes to things... um, like best series, like those overall categories, everyone votes on them. When it gets to the acting categories, all of the actors vote, which is still in the thousands. And so it, it's, it's the reason you start to see these big, especially in New York and LA, these big FYC billboards. It's because everyone is competing for the attention of 18,000 people just trying to get to the top of the pack. So there's,
2: there's 400 shows. And there are also, there are, so many women doing incredible work, and I completely understand that, and we all understand that there's, you know, but <laughs> <laughs> I think if you're looking objectively just at the creativity involved, and it's an acting category, I understand that, but you know, I, certainly if you, when you look at what Rachel's done this year, and you look at the structure she done, she's done it under, and then I'll just say one more thing about this, which is cable shows write, shoot, and edit and we write, shoot, and edit at the same time. So, I'm tired, but she's tired and she's performing and singing. So, I don't know, I, you know I'm biased, but I, I think what she does is not only extraordinary, I think it's unprecedented.
0: Okay, okay I think we have time for about two more questions. Let's go with which character, other than Rebecca, is your favorite to write for?
2: I mean, I love to write for Paula. What man did this, you know? <laughs> it's um, all her. That's I, her. I, I love insult comics, and a lot of the movies that I've written have insult comics. You know, that sort of character, Miranda Priestley is like that, and Mike Pomeroy and Morning Glory, and I love to write uh, barbs. So I, love, I like writing. Paula's a sort of a opinionated, angry, middle-aged lady, and <laughs> somehow... I connect to that. I don't know how. <laughs> I,
1: uh, I access Daryl because he and I are both um, really wide-eyed, like, people pleasers. Um, and so the, oh, I just I feel like that's something I really like to access. Um, and we were talking about it earlier today. You're also very good at writing Nathaniel.
2: Very good at writing the. Well, he's he's very Darwinian, and he has an Ayn Rand quality to him, and I, that is the exiled part of myself. <laughs> um, I really
1: liked. Uh, I, I really also connected in writing for Greg because uh, Greg is someone who grew up in Southern California, who kind of hated it and resented how happy other people were, and that was my experience growing up in Southern California. And so there was there was like a definite like kinship with the darkness there. Um, Also, I love writing for y (laughs) Joe. All
0: right, I think this is the perfect final question. As lady bosses of TV, do you have any advice for up-and-coming women in production?
2: Oh, (laughs) I have a a lot. I mean, I have a lot, but um, I will say, first and foremost, stop apologizing to the furniture. I mean, there it's you know uh Rachel is a people pleaser i'm not i don't know how i escaped that um but i i have noticed that you know when women speak they ask for permission to speak they apologize for what they said, and then they apologize for having said it. So it's a little bit like, you know, I was thinking we don't have to do this. I mean, we can, we don't have to, but I was thinking we don't have to do this. But I had this idea like maybe we could shoot it like this, which we don't have to do because it's a terrible idea. So let's not do that. If you did want to do it and you thought it was a good idea, I might think it was a good idea. It's probably not, let's not, but let's do this. And then someone says, it's brilliant. And they're like, oh, I was totally like, you're an idiot. But if you think it's good, like we could do that. Who could help me with that? and that Rachel knows like that drives me bonkers and and all the young women in our show uh have gotten a talk from me about like you can simply pitch an idea and you know what i have learned what i have learned being a boss is like men think they're amazing <laughs> they were told that they were amazing and so and 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 it's they don't it's not mean and it's not even arrogant, but like a man will pitch an idea like, boom. (laughs) (laughs) And the thing where women really want to, and it's not even the up-talking, because I don't even really mind the up-talking. It's the thing of like just uh, asking permission to have an opinion. Mm. And uh, you don't need to do that.
1: Uh, and I would say, um, exhaust every possibility. Um, I mean, Aline says it great, uh, boats in the water, always be having boats in the water. Like it's always be writing something, set deadlines for yourself. That screenplay sitting in the back of your closet isn't helping anyone, but if you set a table read for it, then you have to finish it by that date. So I think just making sure not only are you doing, uh, doing things um, that still challenge you and broaden your horizons, but also holding yourself accountable some way. And for me, that was always, I mean, I finished my first TV spec because I was applying to the Nickelodeon Writing Fellowship. I didn't think I'd get in but it gave me a deadline. Now then, when I was discovered by reps for that first music video that I released, in my back pocket, I had this finished spec that I happened to have finished months earlier for the Nickelodeon Fellowship. And like, so just those little deadlines, I know they seem insignificant, even if you think you won't get in. Even if you think you won't get into Sundance, like make a short that, just have that as a goal, because that's, that's the only way I get anything done. Sure. Thank you. All right. You're welcome. <laughs> All right, I think that's all the time we have. Thank Thank you, everybody. (laughs) Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening. 92Y Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92YOnDemand.org.